1: Welcome to Escaping Society, Episode 23, Foraging, Hobo's Garden of Eaton, Part 2. I'm Teresa. I'm Gumby. And we are outside of Moriarty, New Mexico. We finally left Flagstaff. We were concerned about the uh, excessive heat in the south and southeastern part of the U.S. And, uh, well... We're sitting here at yet another rest stop. It is uh, about 58, 59 degrees cold and rainy in the desert of New Mexico. So I guess we're doing pretty good on avoiding the heat for now. <laughs> I hope it's not a shock to our system by time we eventually reach that heat bubble. Um, so last episode of uh, Foraging Hobo's Garden of Eaton, uh, we left off talking about different ways that we can get protein and why we need protein, Um, but Gumby had mentioned some different ways you can find protein uh, by foraging. We talked about the seeds of jewelweed and um, different nuts like hickory nuts and uh, acorns and pecans. Yes, dear. So this episode, I guess we'll start talking about um, other food groups Okay, so... <laughs> that was my horrible segue. Yeah,
0: I didn't even recognize that this a segue, yeah. but I guess I'm talking now. <laughs> so um, I'll start off with this one, uh, bringing up something that I brought up before. I think I brought this up in Back to Reality uh, when I talked about food, but the four basic four plants that can kind of complement and round out a uh, pretty well-rounded diet. Um, get to know your grasses if you can eat grasses and by the way they don't you, you can't digest them very well animals that eat grasses tend to have multi-chambered stomachs or to tend to poop it out and eat the poop and digest it again like rabbits, ligomorphs. Um Yeah I threw in that word just to sound smart. Uh, Lagomorph. Um, but we don't have stomachs that are equipped for digesting grass so if you're just eating it like putting it in your mouth and chewing it you can swallow the spit and get vitamins A and D from that and then spit out the fibers. Or you can make a tea, but that's a good source of just, uh, you know, grass is everywhere. So it doesn't matter whether it's like fescue or whatever, just your kind of green soft grass as long as no poisons have been sprayed on it. Um, Another member of the grass family that's another one of these four plants that really help you with that well-rounded diet are cattails. Um, in addition to the vitamins A and D, well, I don't really know anybody who eats cattail leaves, but I could be wrong about that. Mm. But I know people who eat the, uh, the corms, the roots, you can get really good carbohydrates and starch from that. Um, you can eat the cattail heads. I've never figured out how to do that, but apparently there's some stage that when they're still in their sheath, you can like cook them like a corn on the cob and eat them. Um, but they're a really good food source. I have eaten the roots and they're, they're tasty. Um, you can just like... Eat them, peel them down to when you get to the white chewy stuff. You'll know when you're kind of uh, t- chewing the tough skin. You just peel a little bit more. Um, another plant, pine trees. If you know a pine tree as opposed to a cedar or a spruce or a fir, and a lot of those have the same qualities as far as vitamin C as well. But any pine tree, Virginia pine, loblolly, uh, ponderosa pine. If you chop up the little pine needles, put them in a cup. Uh, Boil, put, pour some water in, um, boil that, get it to a rolling boil, and then put a, a cap on it so that these volatile, volatile oils don't escape. Um, let it cool and then drink it. You've got a really strong source of vitamin C, better than orange juice. And oak trees. This is the fourth. Um, this is a source of protein. When the acorns are being produced, and, of course, this is only in the, what, autumn, I guess, um, all the acorns drop and you've got two main groups. You've got the red and the black acorns, and you got the white acorns. The white acorns from the white oaks are bulkier. They're a better source of protein, a better source of food. You can also use the red and the black ones. It just takes more work. Um, you got to boil them, and that tends to get them soft, and then you can shell them. And then you can put the nut meat in the water and boil that, dump it out, boil that, dump it out. You probably have to do that at least three times, and then taste it. Um, It still might be a little uh, bitter because of the tannic acid, but that's okay. If it's uh, palatable, you can decide whether you want to boil it and dump it out more. Um, Or an alternative is if you shell them, you can put them in a bag and put them in a stream and just let the stream leach the tannic acids out. The tannic acid on the last boil, when it's the weakest, can be a tea that's soothing for your stomach. On the first boil, when it's the strongest, can be a skin wash that's good for uh, things like poison ivy. But relevant to this podcast, foraging, the acorns themselves are really good edibles. You can just eat them right away. You know, they're kind of like a boiled peanut at that point. Um, Or you can dry them out, really carefully, slowly dry them out, like pound them up, spread them out on a sheet, get them in the sun. Uh, You really got to be concerned with humidity, like if you're in North Carolina, like I generally am. Um, And then you can use that powder as flour, especially if you can mix it with another kind of flour, like your typical flour, kind of round it out to give it more nutrition, more protein, make bread, cookies, pancakes, all kinds of stuff.
1: Oh my God. I have had acorn cookies and I got them at a uh, music festival just as a treat for myself and they were super expensive. And I know why, because it's a lot of work to make them, but God, there is something so amazing to have just from the land, like... The acorn flour in the cookies is so good.
0: Yeah, and I've had pancakes made from acorn flour with uh, syrup that we tapped the red maple tree and boiled it down to make the syrup, and oh, that was an, an amazing experience. Mm. Um, but yeah, just those four groups. Um, as I said the last time I mentioned this in Back to Reality, I have not found this as useful as some of the other tips, but. Um, I've had people that I trust pass this knowledge on and maybe if maybe I just haven't practiced this enough but they are a good thing to keep in mind if you're in a a dire situation you can't find the other stuff you're familiar with if you can find just regular old green grass go down to some water find some cattail which there's uh, a lot of cattail growing across the country find some kind of oak tree if you're at the right time of year get those acorns And find pine trees and chop up those pine needles. You've got vitamin C, you've got protein, you've got carbohydrates, and you've got vitamins A and D. So you've got a pretty well-rounded plant-based diet at that point. Um, Also, something that I mentioned in Herbalism Unplugged, um, before you start using plants, two plants I would say everybody should know. Look them up online, get a field guide. Whatever it takes to feel familiar with these plants are poison hemlock and, and water hemlock. These are the two most poisonous plants in North America. Of course, you want to know other poisonous plants as well, but these two, make sure you at least know these two. These are so deadly that uh, I've heard of someone confusing poison hemlock with elderberry, and they were trying to make a little whistle. They put it against their lips just to blow on the whistle, and it killed them. That's how poisonous this plant can be. Poison hemlock was used as a way to put people to death in... uh, God, I always get confused with Greek and Roman. I think it's Greek, but... where when Socrates was around, this is how he got put to death. It was considered a humane way to execute people. Um, because Socrates actually, Plato recorded, um, Socrates' death. Socrates was talking to him as he died after he drank this poison hemlock tea. And so it's recorded that what it feels like is a growing sleepiness and a growing coldness until you just pass away, you die. Water hemlock is considered a much more violent way to die. It, uh, there's this story I read, I think it was in the 1800s, of these kids that were looking for, I think, golden parsnip, and they got water hemlock and ate it. And this one boy goes home, and he starts having severe stomach cramps and goes into convulsions and just is, is convulsing and convulsing and flapping around for hours. His parents are trying to hold him down. They don't know what to do. There's no easy doctor to run to. Um he eventually all of his muscles lock up so much that they say his head and his heels are touching the floor and a baby could crawl under him he's just locked into a a human arc like that and then after two hours his body finally exhausted just his muscles relax and they think oh my god i hope this has passed and then he starts again convulsing 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 for hours just agony and it said that even when he was dead, after he was dead and they buried him, green froth was coming out of all of the orifices in his body. Oh my God! So water hemlock is not a way anybody wants to go. Get to know water hemlock and poison hemlock. And I tell those stories because I want to scare you. I want to motivate you. Mm. Don't just think like, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. No, don't make that mistake. Like everything else, if you give yourself diarrhea, stomach cramp, or whatever. You'll probably be able to recover and uh, learn your lesson. Not these two. You get one chance. Poison hemlock, water hemlock.
1: Oh, my God. And I just, I don't know why I feel like this is important to share, but I was trying to remember which one is, like, the peaceful, more peaceful way to die. So I was thinking poison hemlock is peaceful, way to die. And water hemlock is the worst.
0: Yeah. And actually one of my, uh, you know, I can imagine situations where I would want to take my own life. Um, I mean, let's face it, life has a lot of facets to it. And I'm not one of these people that think black and white, you know, never take your own life. No, there are times when I would want to check myself out. And in the back of my head, I always consider poison hemlock as kind of like, I think that might be the way I would do it if uh, I was in a pinch. Um, But yeah, throwing that in there, maybe a little bit morbid, but yeah, yeah, that is the gentle one. So don't confuse them. Um, When I first started, well, the first time I, and I don't remember this, there's this picture of me as a baby in a field of dandelions making the sour face, like, because apparently I ate a dandelion. So I like to, you know, joke with people like, oh yeah, I was foraging. I was born foraging. Like, you know, I was out there eating dandelions already. I remember when I was a really little kid, I'd get those honeysuckle flowers, and I'd pick them, and I'd pinch off the base of it and pull out very carefully that stem, that middle, uh, God, I guess that would be the pistil, pull that out. Is that the stamen or the pistil? No, that's the pistil. I'd pull that out really slowly, and there'd be this little drop of honeysuckle dew, and i we'd eat that or kind of drink it, slurp it up, and it would be so good. So it occurred to me, wow, I bet it would be like ambrosia, the most heavenly thing ever, if I filled up a whole cup with honeysuckle drops. So I spent hours out there in the honeysuckle patch with a cup, drop, drop, drop in that cup, until I lost patience, which a couple hours doing that as a little kid was pretty impressive, (laughs) I think. And uh, I had like a little sip in there. I I drank the sip, and damn it, it, it tasted like water. It wasn't that that treat I'd been waiting for. Oh, no. So uh, I learned later how to make honeysuckle tea, which still isn't quite as potent as that little tiny precious drop that you get by itself. But, yeah, that was my second memory into uh, foraging. And then later when I was in school, I remember me and one of my friends during PE, as usual, we were sitting out, you know, not wanting to participate, decided to eat wild onions. And uh, we go to our next class and... (laughs) (laughs) The teacher literally has everybody move their desk to one side of the classroom and puts us in a corner near the window like our (laughs) breath was that bad. A little little later in life, I'm getting serious about foraging, so I get a field guide. I think it was one of these eyewitness to edible plants or something. Um, Not one of the ones I recommend now. It was okay. But anything that I could find in my yard that said edible, I threw in the salad. And I made this great big salad and then finally started to eat it. And that's when I learned the difference between el- edible and palatable. <laughs> it was horrible. So just because something's edible, um, that's a good start. And if you're in a dire need, you know, hell yeah, eat it. But for the, the seasoned forager, the, the forager that's getting more experience, you're going to find flavors that you prefer. Your palate's going to change. So I've learned now how to make a really good tasting salad, um, But yeah, I just wanted to share that because I think people, a lot of people that are starting to forage have some um, experience to some measure of that, of like learning, like, okay, that's edible, but I never want to eat it again. Um, (laughs) Let me see here. And once again, I like to, as I said in Herbalism Unplugged, um, food is medicine. Hippocrates, he said, let your food be your medicine and your medicine be your food. So As you're learning to forage, as you're eating this food, you tend to eat the things that your body needs, especially during the season. You tend to eat things that are diuretics, that make you sweat and pee more in the spring when you need to flush out all that sedentary winter stuff that's been sitting in you. Sugar. We got a sugar's got a bad rap now because our culture, because it's a capitalist culture, decided to put sugar in everything. So we get addicted and eat more and buy more and eat more and buy more and eat more and buy more. And now we're all like diabetic and over obese. But in nature, sugar is a really precious, good thing. When you see berries that have sugar, you freaking eat that. Mm -hmm. That little spike of energy is a huge benefit.
1: Ripe persimmon.
0: Yeah, man. The the bears know this. All the creatures know this. And the human animal, once they start uh, moving back towards a more natural way of life, can can remember this as well. Um, So food is medicine. Um, Just keep that in mind as you're eating this food. It's not just nutritious. When we talk about nutritious, it's not about having a model's body or, you know, big biceps. It's about giving your body medicine. That's what nutrition is. If you're starting to forage, if you don't have a lot of uh, experience, you're kind of hesitant to do it, I would say learn how to make a tea. Um, you can make a tea at about out of about any edible plant we're going to discuss. Not all of them. I'm not going to say every, but a lot of them, especially the green leafy ones. A simple tea can be a infusion where you just chop up the leaves into small parts. The more you chop it up, the more of the plant nutrition, energy, medicine is going to be released. put it in a cup, pour hot water on top of it, let it sit till it's cool enough to drink. voila, you got a tea. It can be that simple. That's how you can start getting these plants in your body, that nutrition. So if you're feeling like, man, you know, I read about Yule Gibbons. He makes soufflés and all these things, and I I don't feel like I'm up for that. But I'm interested. Try a tea. Start making a tea. And there's different ways to make a tea. That's an infusion. I just told you the simplest way. But there's also, uh... oh, God, whenever I'm on the spot, my brain goes blank. Come on. where's another way to make a tea? Sun tea? Well, that's a cold water infusion where you put it in a jar, pour water in it, and just let it sit. Um, And for some stronger things, like honeysuckle flowers, for instance, I just mentioned, cold water infusion is better. You don't need the boiling water. It makes it too strong. Uh, Sumac berries is another thing. Um, Good cold water infusion thing. Makes kind of a lemonade. Turns pink.
1: Sassafras root, the way you do that?
0: Steeping. is Is that when you boil it? I'm not sure. Yeah, didn't do my homework on this one. <laughs> if you ever see me in person, ask me these questions, and it'll just roll off the tip of my tongue. But talking into this damn little machine kind of confounds me sometimes. But, yeah. But the main thing you need to know is tea. Like, learn how to make tea. There are different ways to make tea. Uh, the, the hot water infusion I just told you is the simplest way I know. And that can get you using these plants, interacting with the plants, and forming a relationship. And that'll get you started.
1: And Gumby just made a pine needle tea for me not too long ago because I was fighting this cold. And uh, we were in the like high desert of Nevada. And he just found some pine needles and chopped them up and made a fire. It was magical. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it really did help.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely had it. It even tastes kind of like Theraflu. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's got that lemony, like high vitamin C taste. It's definitely helped me when I have a cold. Uh, my favorite tea are mints. I love mint tea, spearmint tea. Uh, we often are in the mountains or God, just all over the country. We're going to talk more about plant families, but once you get to know the mint family, um, you can make a pretty damn educated guess that even if it's not a species you're familiar with, you're dealing with the mint family. And, uh, because it's the mint family you can probably make a nice tea out of it and I love this tea it's soothing helps you get rid of headaches helps you sleep it just relaxes you and it tastes magical I love (laughs) mint tea Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I love the Japanese tea ceremony um and I would encourage you as you're getting to know these plants be careful of your philosophy going in I talked about the what did I call it got it written down here the honorable harvest at the last episode um but keep that, mi- that mindset um, that you're not just going in there to use these plants. They're not put there for you. They're not a thing for you to go in and just use them. I think the Japanese tea ceremony, if you're taking my advice and trying teas, is a great way to really honor the plant. Um, use the honorable harvest to gather the plant. And then when you have the tea, sit there, take a breath. You know, embrace that quiet around you. Notice the sounds, notice the music of this moment. Even if you're near an interstate like we are right now, that's the music of this moment. Each one of those cars is an instrument in this symphony. Any bird I hear is one of those instruments. Be here, be present. I like to put my hands around that cup of tea and feel the warmth and let that move into my body, really feel it creep up my arms and see if I can smell the tea even without bending over just really bring myself present and then lean over and really take a smell of that tea. Not rush it, just smell it and enjoy it. When I smell that tea, those molecules are already entering my body. I'm already in relationship with this tea without having tasted a single drop yet. And when I finally am ready to drink it, you know, and by the way, engage all your senses. Notice the color of the tea. Look at the tea. Look at the cup. Notice the, the, the artistry of this moment. Look around at all the colors and shadows, like anything that brings you present, brings you here now, as part of this tea ceremony. And when you're open like this, you can really notice this tea. Bring it up to your lips, bring it into your mouth, and don't be in a hurry to swallow it, a small sip, just like one of these uh, wine connoisseurs, you know? Really experience this. Swish it around. Feel the tea in your mouth. Feel the warmth of it. Feel the flavor. What part of your tongue does it stimulate? And then finally swallow it. You'll notice so many differences between teas in your yard, just the stuff in your yard. I'm not even talking about going on a hike to get more exotic stuff. The stuff already in your yard, the difference between violet tea and dandelion tea is night and day to the person that really takes the time to notice it. And you can even feel, if you're really tuned into it, the part of your body it goes to. Again, food is medicine. As you're drinking this for nutrition, it is helping parts of your body more than others because all these things are medicine. So that, that tea ceremony, I, I really encourage that. I do that with my coffee some mornings because it's easy to take for granted. You know, this coffee got bought from a store, ship, blah, blah, blah. You know, sometimes it's harder to look at that as sacred. But when I remind myself to do this and go find a nice, beautiful place to sit, lean against a tree and drink my coffee in the way I just described, oh my God. The medicine of coffee is unmistakable. I can feel what it does for my body. It's a good thing. In moderation. All things in moderation, just like the sugar. I've heard that if you the more that you forage, the more that your diet is based on the plants of the land, the less attractive you are to bugs. The bugs are actually attracted to the exotic flavors of all these imported things we eat, these spicy things that makes our, our blood, our skin, smell stronger, alcohol, tobacco, um, all the things that we put in our bodies tend to attract more bugs. The more you forage, um, the less that's the case. Uh, I can't say from my own experience I've necessarily foraged enough to, to testify to that. One thing I have noticed is when the first time I took off hitchhiking in 98, I had read that plantain, plantico major or Plantago lanceolata, any of the the plantains, if you pluck off the little seed heads and eat a couple seed heads a day, I've heard that really helps keep bugs away. Mm. And I thought I noticed a difference. So I I still share that knowledge with people and invite them. Go find out for yourself, you know, like try to test it. But in general, that's something that you can hope for. Uh, I was about to (laughs) say expect, but I don't like expectations. But see if it's true for you, you know, try foraging for... Hell, a couple days, like see if you can make most of your diet foraging and then go out there where you've been bitten by mosquitoes and see if there's a difference. Uh, Find out for yourself. And another way to get started, other than the teas, um, I tend to be an extremist. I tend to, when I do something, I think I need to do it like all or nothing, (laughs) go big or go home. Sometimes that's a good philosophy. It gets me really like delving into stuff deeply. Sometimes it uh, overwhelms me and I give up on things. Um, Foraging was one of those things. I thought I just needed to forage all the time, and if I couldn't do that, eh, why bother? What I found now, after doing it for years and years, is it's really good to complement a meal, Like, especially if you're a scavenger. like You're boycotting consumerism. I mean, let's face it. Anytime you spend money, even at the farmer's market, trace that dollar where it goes. It's going to wind up in somebody's pocket you wish hadn't gotten another dollar, (laughs) because they're not going to use it for anything that's good for the earth. Anytime you spend money... I feel like it's tainted. This this uh, responsible consumerism, maybe there is slightly better ways to spend your money than others, but it all, to me, is uh, basically a bad thing. It's that whole lesser of two evils crap instead of just, like, finding ways to reject evil. But if you can forage food and scavenge, um, my God, like the best salads I have aren't just stuff I find in my yard. They're primarily stuff I find in my yard, complemented with maybe salad dressing that I scavenge from a dumpster and cheese that I scavenge from a dumpster. Uh, hell, maybe even some like something roadkill that I cooked, some squirrel mm-hmm. that I seasoned and cooked really well and chopped it up and then added that to the salad. Man, I did that one time and it was so freaking good. <laughs> but complement your meals with it even if you're just eating a sandwich like and you're reminding yourself oh man that's right i I meant to like push myself i wanted to forage at least one thing a day which was what i was doing for quite a while i've kind of fallen off that lately but stop for a minute look around maybe you'll see some wood sorrel throw that in your sandwich it doesn't have to be a big meal that's built around the wood sorrel Mm -hmm. add it complement your meals with these forage things um that is a really good way to get started because you'll find that like I mentioned my uh, mowing ceremony where I'd go out in the yard and forage stuff where I mowed the grass before. Um, that's how I'd primarily use stuff. Whatever I cooked, i just look at my plants that I had in my little Tupperware containers. What can I throw in there? And I found that almost everything I ate could benefit from one of those plants in my yard, just simply throwing it on, not doing anything fancy with it.
1: Yeah, and as I was starting to learn how to cook, which wasn't that long ago, a couple years ago, um, Gumby was encouraging me to also add some of the things from our yard into whether it was a stir fry or if we just made a even a canned soup from a food pantry or found a can of soup in the dumpster or something you can just throw something in and maybe it doesn't add a like a complex taste but it's something that's from the wild and there's just something that it I don't know it reconnects me when I have it um so for example like we've had uh, my goodness different dock um in a stir fry, definitely wintercress uh, is so good in a stir fry, and I just love it anyway, um, different types of mustard, and it's amazing when you really take the time to have, like, an experience with the different plants, so all the different types of mustard that we've, we've done some videos on, wow, it, like, it has different hotness to it, or a different, it'll, like, catch it in your throat or like on the tip of your tongue um, or the back of your tongue just in the spiciness. Uh, we've also had jewel weed as a pot herb. I'm not crazy about that as well as um, poke Too much work for me but those are also options if it happens to be around you. Uh, young poke <clears throat> And then of course we mentioned um, having salad so many times. I have enjoyed uh, sheep sorrel, dandelion, oh, oxide daisy. Oh, the, yeah. Uh,
0: that is one of my favorites. Oh,
1: my God. And it's such a complex taste. Sometimes people are just like, you know, they taste it and they're like, mm, that's uh, different. But if you really take the time to savor the, the different things that are going on just with that one leaf from the oxeye daisy, it's it is quite amazing
0: when I first learned it I heard I had learned that the petals were edible so I would just pick the petals and nibble on them or throw them in the salad it was only years later that I learned the leaves were edible and the leaves are by far the best part I mean that is one of those unique like a lot of foraging things that you find are just you know you eat them until you find something you really like but there are a few plants that are going to be your favorites and I would say johnny jump ups and oxeye daisy are a couple of my absolute favorites Oh, and sweet Sicily.
1: Yeah, I was going to mention um, Johnny Jump Ups. They're very, uh, they're also a very interesting taste to put into your salad because they're minty, and you wouldn't think that that would necessarily work in a salad, but it does. You get like all these different flavor bursts. Um, sweet Sicily is something that uh, is reminiscent of fennel. Is it in the fennel family? Is it related?
0: No, No, Sweet Sicily is actually in the parsley family, and we're going to talk about uh, families a little bit more towards the end of this podcast.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, it's good regardless of whatever family it belongs to. It's definitely uh, on the top of my list of favorites. Um, Greenbrier is uh, the tips of it, the young little tips of the greenbrier, and that's something that grows a lot in uh, disturbed areas of the woods, and often when you have a trail... Um, going through the woods you'll see it it's uh I don't know like viney and spiky and you can just you know if it's for you obviously being uh, respectful of the plant but if it comes off easily that's how I know it that it's for me to try you have anything to add about greenbrier? um
0: I've heard that it's good for male energy uh for mineralist. um so, I don't know, take that with a grain of salt. If you're a guy, you might want to take special attention to nibbling greenbrier when you can
1: mm-hmm. And uh, we've done, like I, I mentioned in the last podcast, part one, we've done a lot of videos on these, not all of the plants, um just because I don't know. we just haven't had a chance to to interact with them on our journey. But we have done uh, and we have done a video on sour grass and the pickles. They're not actual pickles, but that's just what they call them. Um, they look like little... Are they the seed pods?
0: Of uh, sour grass? Mm-hmm. Wood sorrel? Yeah, those are the seed pods.
1: Yeah, those are nice and sour. I remember when I was in Nepal at an orphanage. You've been in Nepal? Yes, I have. And the the kids were telling me about this plant. They're like, Auntie, Auntie, try this. It's our amylo. And I'm like, what is an amylo? And amilo is the word for sour. And they were actually... What was that? I forget. It was um it was a potted plant. It was like a flower that you here in the States like you would buy at a garden center. But that was something that they really enjoyed. And just like those kids enjoyed the sour taste of their amilo um in Nepal, here in the US, kids can enjoy the sourness of sourgrass or wood sorrel and the pickles are really fun. Um, wild onions we mentioned, um, and the tops of wild onions. I'm not exactly sure like if they're different types of wild onion or if it's just a different part of their cycle but the tops are really good they're almost like an appley onion taste it's like really different remember picking those on the trail which one um the tops of wild onions
0: oh yeah my god yeah if you get the top (laughs) right at the right time that is the best part of the onion
1: I mean some of these things that we forage it's you can't buy anything like that in the store. I
0: actually don't even eat the bulbs of wild onions anymore. I found them too labor intensive for me. Um, damn it. I'm trying not to say um. um.
1: (laughs) Well, I've, I, I will occasionally, um, dig up some wild onions because, uh, like when we were in our yard and I was making a stir fry and I didn't have any onion and I could, see out in the yard there were so many growing and all throughout the field i would go out there and i wouldn't harvest too many um and it is somewhat labor intensive because they tend to be small but boy they add a really nice flavor
0: by the time you peel off all the layers and get to the part that is like the onion it uh got it um (laughs) no i'm trying not to do it i'm saying liking them all the time it tends to still be woody So I'm not saying not to eat it, I'm just saying that's my experience with it. I've heard that it's best to gather in the spring after a rain, because they will actually plump up and be plumper after a fresh spring rain, and they're easier to pull out of the soil because the soil is soft. Now, when I want the flavor of onion, Mm -hmm. I treat them more like chives. I just clip off the tops, chop them up, and put them in whatever I'm making, and I find that puts the flavor of onion in there as much as I want, with the exception of that top we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. When I find those, that is a flavor pack of onion it's full of flavor and it's really easy to gather so keep an eye out for those get to know onion and eventually you're going to be out there at the right time of year to see that top we're talking about look in a field guide or look it up online if you want to see a picture of what that looks like it is worth your time Uh, i'll just nibble that along the the trail side
1: Uh, along with wild onions some things that grow in a lot of places violets the uh, the leaves I call it like a really gentle version of spinach. I don't really like spinach. The leaves of violets to me are like really fresh, but they have that same kind of warmth that spinach leaves have. But I, I much prefer violet leaves and the flowers too. You can put the flowers, sprinkle them on top of your salad or just nibble them. Um, as well as red tree flowers, the, the flowers of red are pretty magical to add to your salad. Um, Something that Gumby shared with me not too long ago, just a few months ago, was trout lily, and what is it? The leaves of the trout lily we had.
0: Yeah, you can eat the leaves and the little tubers. Maybe the flowers. I'm not sure, but I, I eat the leaves. Like I throw some in the salad. I, I just, I don't know. I don't eat too many of them. The tubers are really good.
1: And the texture of the leaves is different. It's it's really nice and like. Thick but crunchy in a way.
0: And they're one of those first things to pop up in the spring. So when you're excited, winter's over, and you're excited to run out there and start foraging with all these great plants popping up, you'll run across the trout lily pretty soon. At least in North Carolina, I'm not sure how widespread it is.
1: Mm-hmm. Something that um, we had somewhat widespread in our yard was chickweed, and I remember—is that a what is that over there? A might, dog?
0: Might be somebody's dog.
1: Oh. <laughs> um, Oh gosh, the uh, the chickweed that I had in my own yard many years ago was growing on top of my uh, my compost pile, and it was just like this thick, lush blanket of green. And uh, it's it's kind of trailing. It's not a vine, but it it just kind of grows long, and you can snip it and um, add that to your salad as like even the base of your salad. And uh, let's see, poor man's pepper. I haven't used that as much, but it is kind of fun to, if you see it, to kind of nibble on it. And um, the last one that I had here for salad was wisteria flowers. Now, you don't want to eat too many of them because what is it that they're they are like somewhat mildly toxic?
0: Yeah, they're in the pea family. And again, we're going to talk about families in a minute. But a lot of things in the pea family have some measure of toxicity in them. So you should eat them in moderation. And if you're thinking, oh, man, i, I if it's got toxicity in it, why the hell would I eat it? Most of the vegetables that we grow in our garden hmm. are in the nightshade family
1: tomatoes, potatoes, tomato, bell, for instance. Peppers. You can
0: eat the, the fruit of a tomato, but if you eat any other part of the plant, it's poisonous. So, <laughs> most of the vegetables you're familiar with are, are poisonous plants. Yeah, so don't let a little bit of toxicity in things like wisteria flowers uh, steer you away from it. Just you know, be careful with it, be aware.
1: And we generally don't put wisteria in the salad, but on occasion, let's say...
0: Oh, oh, I just just wanted to share this before I forget, because I will forget. There were a bunch of kids in my group one time. I was teaching them wisteria flowers. Like, you can eat these. And I told them all about moderation. And one kid went home, and apparently he chowed down on them. And (gasps) his mother sent me an alarmed (laughs) message like, Gumby, he just learned this flower in your camp, wisteria, and he's feeling really bad. He got a stomachache. Like, what should I do? And I just sent her this message, like one word. I said tell him to stop (laughs) and he was fine but yeah it's not not anything to be afraid of but yeah I mean (laughs) be careful
1: yeah we would only add maybe like six or less than 10 petals of the wisteria flower but if you happen to see wisteria growing and you just take a petal and eat it it's really heady I don't want a lot of these in my salad, but it, it does add, I mean, it does add a different dimension of wildness and I don't know, the flavor is quite unique as I've mentioned for a lot of these. Um, Gumby, do you want to talk about proteins again? Oh my
0: gosh, do I ever.
1: (laughs) You don't have to talk a lot about
0: it. Watch this shit. Like, (laughs) I was listening to the last foraging part one, and I said um so many times, and it drove me freaking nuts, so I'm trying to break myself (laughs) of this habit, so I'm not going to say um for the rest of this podcast.
1: If he does, take a drink.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, make a drinking game of it. Next time I say like in a non-appropriate Part of the sentence, or um, take a shot. And if you're sober by the end of this, I win. If you're drunk, you win. Okay, pressure's on. Okay, protein. I'm going to try to go over this pretty quickly because this is a little repetitive. We mentioned this in the first one. But just to put together sources of protein because this is pretty special in the plant kingdom. (laughs) I had to fight it.
1: Uh, Ah, goddamn Ah, goddammit!
0: So, I had a survival instructor tell me protein, plants keep you healthy, protein keeps you alive. Um. (laughs) Wait, wait, let me collect myself. All right. So, here are some sources of plant protein nuts. Nut season tends to be in the autumn. This is where you can find a lot of plant proteins, late summer into early winter. Most of these are nuts, beech nuts. Get to know the beech nut. Nuts often have mast years. I don't know if every tree has mast years, but I believe it does. And if not, most trees have mast years. And what that means, as we said in the first one, is it'll save up energy and then one year it'll drop in abundance. So really look for the mast years. That's when you can really learn about these, these seeds, these plants and use them. Beech are really small. At first, I dismissed them because they were so small. And then I did a survival trip where I couldn't find any food. We were hungry. But there were beech nuts everywhere, so I took the time to pop open the little three-chambered nut and collect a a handful, and even raw. They were delicious, and I could feel them feed my body in a way that the leafy plants were not. It it curbed my hunger. When you cook them, and again, this is something that if you're sitting around in a survival situation with a lot of time on your hands and nothing else to do... (laughs) This is when you bother doing things like this, experimenting. But when we cooked them, it gave them a milky flavor. Mm. It was even better. So beech nuts are worth your time, Um, especially, especially if you're not finding anything else. Acorns, I already mentioned. It's a pretty involved process. So what I told you might get you started, but definitely look that up in another field guide. There are plenty out there. We mentioned field guides in the last episode that will tell you how to do this and probably some good videos. I haven't looked on YouTube for videos on this yet. There are, of course, walnuts. We have black walnuts where I live. There's English walnuts. They tend to be good when they're starting to turn black. There's these big green husks. When they start to turn black, check them. I've heard... People say they like to collect them when they're green. Other people say when they're totally black. Experiment. See what works for you. But you Mm -hmm. just take that husk off, and it is a ink. It's a dye, so be careful. It'll stain your hands, (laughs) and it'll be on there for a couple of weeks. Your hands will be kind of orangish-brown. It's also used as a fish poison, so it's almost like iodine. I've I've even heard people will take a little bit of this husk and treat water that's questionable with it. Hmm. So there's a lot of use for this husk, but we're talking about the nut right now. Get the husk off. Get the nut, crack it open, and there you go. You know, your common walnut. All the things you can do with any other walnut. Acorns, uh, hickory nuts. Hickory nuts are my favorite nut right now because I make hickory nut milk. And I just love going out to collect these nuts. Again, the husks can be useful. You can build a fire, like dig a pit in the ground. Damn it. Uh, damn it. Just calm down. Shh, shh, shh. Hold on, hold on. I'm getting it. I'm getting it. So you put the husks build a fire in the ground you can put the husks on top and it'll smolder you don't want a flame for this to make smoke and you can smoke things like a a tanned hide uh, a lot of things to give it a more waterproof um, it'll shed water better it will give a nice color to things if you want to color things by smoking it so husks can be useful a useful thing to keep around i used to keep them in a bucket. I'd have a, I would have ai lived in a place with a fireplace at the time, and I'd kind of throw them in there, and it would provide a good smell too. But the hickory nuts themselves, you crush them up, put them in a pot, you boil it. Maybe I'll do a video on this, because this is kind of an involved process too. But basically, you're boiling it for quite a while until the water gets really milky. The nut meat will float to the top. So even if it, what you're after is the nut meat, hickories are notorious for being hard to get the nut meat out. They're harder than walnuts. It takes a lot of work. But if you do what I said, you boil them, the husks, the shells will go to the bottom and the meat will just boil right out of that and float to the top and you can skim them right off and you can put them in your freezer and you can put them on ice cream. You can put them in oatmeal. That's my favorite way to eat the nuts. Mm -hmm. If you make breads,
1: you can add it to your bread.
0: Such a delightful flavor and and Mm. nice consistency, like a little crunch. And the nut milk is full of protein and, and fats and I think lipids. I don't know. Now I'm getting into what I don't know what I'm talking about.
1: And it's good. It's best warm.
0: Yeah. I love drinking it as a cold drink. Cold. I mean a warm drink (laughs) with, you know, the other thing. The other kind of cold. Warm.
1: Yeah.
0: Mixing in a little bit of uh, milk, some kind of cream, and honey. Mmm. It's really good. It's so good. I used to drink hot chocolate all the time during the winter. I don't drink hot chocolate when I have hickory nut milk around anymore. Hickory nut milk is my go-to winter drink.
1: And again, if you feel like, oh, well, I, I drink almond milk or I have, you know, these other different types of milk I get from the store, it's different. There's something that happens when you drink something or eat something that's that you've harvested, that you've foraged, and it's coming from nature and it's going directly into you there's just something that happens.
0: Yeah, it really is. It's not an abstract, like, relationship, you know, philosophy kind of thing in the intellectual domain. There's a physical difference that you can tune into. It definitely does taste different. Just like I used to say, stolen things taste better. Uh, <laughs> now I say foraged things taste better. Okay, so
1: wait, don't forget about pecans. Those are the easiest ones. Okay, or, pecans.
0: Yeah. All right, pecans.
1: We've we've had those when we were backpacking, just like walking past a pecan tree and chowing down or picking some up, stuff in our pockets, and then whenever we get to a stopping point, just cracking them open. They're so good.
0: They really are the easiest. I'll always remember one time we were doing the Mountains to Sea Trail backpacking, and it had us walking along a road, and there was this big pecan tree that was dropping nuts all over this person's front yard, and we just started going all over their front yard and filled up every single one of our pockets with pecans, and they were really delightful. They're easy to crack open and easy to get to the nut meat, and it's just really a good uh, source of food. And a lot of foraging is labor intensive, so anything when you get one of these ones that's not, (laughs) that's really a special thing.
1: And if you're not sure what we were saying, they're also called pecans.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I've heard a pecan is something you keep under your bed. Well, pecan is something you eat.
1: Well, that's true, too. And don't forget these that we've already mentioned, but just to add them to the list. I
0: know. Oh. So, apparently, lamb's quarters, I have not eaten these seeds, but that's a source of protein, so that's all I'm going to say about that until I have more experience to share. Jewelweed seeds, something I do have experience in, and again, I was on a survival trip, and I couldn't find any source of protein. Nothing. My traps weren't working. None of my other food-collecting... Uh, devices was coming through So I found jewelweed would Cut my hands around the seeds Let them pop Gather those tiny little green seeds And just took the time They look small They don't look worth your time But when there's nothing else going on If you spend a couple hours And this is the way a lot of animals eat by the way They don't have to go to work They don't have to clean their house They don't have to do all these <laughs> chores That we fill up our lives with They can use time to go and eat tiny bits of food That eventually accumulate So it's kind of neat when you give yourself that experience the little jewelweed seeds, yeah, just try them out. We've got a video on this. Check out our YouTube channel through our website. Collect those, eat them. They taste like little green beans. They're pretty good, and they have protein. So they will actually make you feel full, whereas some leafy things, you'll eat them and eat them and eat them, and you won't feel satisfied. You'll feel like, God, my stomach exploded, but I don't feel what I would call full. Um, you need protein. And if you're not drunk by now... <coughs> <laughs> I'm going to try this again. You're
1: not listening. <laughs>
0: yeah, you're not paying attention. Beverages. So, like I said, you can make a tea out of almost everything we talk about. Some of our favorite beverages, really quick. I already mentioned mint. number Probably number one or close to number one. Sassafras tea. You find little sassafras trees. In North Carolina, there's only two trees that have different shaped leaves, three different shaped leaves on the same tree. And that is mulberry, which there are two kinds of mulberry and sassafras. They both have the same three general shapes. One looks like your typical leaf shape. One looks like a mitten, a uh, big part with a little lobe on the side. Like a
1: thumb.
0: Yep, a thumb. And one looks like what I call a ghost. It looks like a main middle part with two little lobes on the side, like a Halloween, Ooh, ghost. <laughs> Mulberries are toothed on the edge. Sassafras are smooth. If you find your... I'm not sure what the range is. Again, I encourage you to look in a field guide. You wouldn't want to really be practicing any of the stuff we're talking about before you put your nose in a field guide anyway, so look in a field guide. Find the range. If you are already know that sassafras is around you, find a patch that's got little ones that are easy to dig up. As long as you're a caretaker and do that honorable harvest, I've heard from Yule Gibbons, he says that the way they grow, it actually benefits the plant to forage these now and then. It gives them more space to spread out and grow mm. strong because they can crowd each other out. They yeah. grow in, in tight colonies. So you can actually help the plant by, by using this plant if you're careful. Take the root, chop it up, boil it until the water turns, you know, orange. It's not orange. It's more like kind of a reddish, I think. And then you've got your tea and you can do this two or three times with that root. So take that root out, let it dry, try it again. I used to drink this warm with sugar because we were doing classes and we were showing the kids we'd have like a little pitcher of warm tea hidden behind the tree, talk about the sassafras tree, and then bring out the warm pitcher with sugar in it. All the kids get a little cup and they taste it, and I taste it, and eh, it's not my favorite. One day we had too much and I stuck it in the fridge and I didn't put sugar in it. I was really thirsty the next day, took it out, drank it cold with no sugar, freaking loved it. That's my (laughs) favorite way to drink it. And it is a blood thinner. They tell you not to drink sassafras root in the winter because if you're already cold, it's going to make you colder. But in the summer, I have a problem with overheating. That's why we took off from North Carolina this summer. I can't stand the freaking heat. So if you drink that, it's a blood thinner. It feels like internal air conditioning. It's marvelous. It feels like you can feel coolness spreading from the inside of your body. It is my favorite drink to stay cool in the summer. Followed by my second favorite to stay cool in the summer, the honeysuckle flowers. Teresa and I have gathered these together. We filled up a mason jar with honeysuckle flowers, poured water in it, put the cap on, poured water to the top, set it. Depending on how strong you want it, you can put it in a window to let it get the sun, make a sun tea, or just put it anywhere and let it sit overnight. The next day, you have a tea that is flavored with the honeysuckle, and this also cools you off in a way similar, but not as strong to my experience, as the sassafras. Let's see. Hickory nut milk we talked about. That is one of my number one favorite beverages. So when I'm not drinking the sassafras tea in the summer, I'm drinking the hickory nut milk in the winter. Mm. Warm. Let's see. Sumac aid. Sumac aid. This is not one of my favorites. It's pretty popular. It tastes reminiscent of lemonade. I don't know. It's just not one of my ones that I personally like. But don't let that deter you. A lot of people love sumac aid, and it's like it. full of vitamin C. Teresa likes it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Also, wood sorrel. The leaves. You can do the same thing, and it also let it sit overnight. Fill up a jar with the, the little. They look like clover leaves. But they, you know, there's little differences, like they're not heart-shaped, they don't have a white collar. But fill up a jar with that, cold water, overnight, turns pink, you've got something that also is full of vitamin C, tastes like lemonade. (laughs) And finally, pine needle tea, as we already mentioned. It's got a good flavor, it's lemony, and it's also packed full of vitamin C. You hear about these sailors when uh, the colonists were first coming to America that were... Had their boats up and down the shore, and they were getting scurvy because they didn't—they ran out of fruits. They ran out of the fruits they were familiar with. There were pine trees all over the place, these giant white pines, but they didn't know about them. If they would have just stopped and made tea out of these pine needles, it would have helped them not have the scurvy. And this was a big affliction back then for the the settlers coming over. So pine needle tea. Any other beverages you want to throw in there?
1: I can't think of any off the top of my head. That's—I just made that list. Um And the reason why I'm kind of going through these in different groups, or Gumby and I are going through them, is just to show you how abundant, like, all these things are in nature. And, you know, even with protein being as difficult to find, we listed all the different, you know, types of protein that we know about and have experienced. Um, something so, Something that uh, is, I don't know, I guess it's more mainstream. I know my mom used to love collecting blackberries, Um, all different types of fruit in nature. And like Gumby mentioned, the uh, sugar content is so good in nature. And there's probably a dog coming up. Um, So blackberries, raspberries. Oh, the blueberries, especially in the mountains. And there's so many different types of blueberries. Uh, Definitely check those out if you're hiking or you're just traveling somewhere in higher elevation. If they have blueberries, check it out. Elderberries. Uh, We mentioned in Herbalism Unplugged, elderberries can also be medicinal. Uh, Persimmons. Whenever I mention persimmons, especially to kids, boy, their face is like, "Ooh, I had a persimmon. And it's probably because someone played a joke on them and made them eat an unripe persimmon.
0: Somebody did that to me.
1: Yeah, I think somebody named Gumby did that to me. Yeah. Yeah, but persimmons are really good, and the best ones are when they've already fallen off the tree. Now, often you'll get bees around them or ants or whatever crawling on them, but there are enough typically for everyone. So just be, again, mindful, aware, be a good caretaker. Don't take all of them. Foxes like them, right? And raccoons?
0: Yeah. Actually, I got something, a few things to say about persimmons. Oh, okay. So foxes, as Teresa mentioned, have a, damn it, there's another word slipping my mind, but a close relationship. If you see a persimmon tree, there's probably a fox in the territory. If you see a fox track or fox sign, there's probably a persimmon tree nearby. Persimmons and foxes have a very close relationship. One of my favorite things I like to do with persimmon trees during the right time of year uh, when they're fruiting is if I have a group of kids, the persimmon tree is a great teacher about how to collect plants i'll take them up to the tree i'll show them the alligator bark the alligator skin bark it's really rough i'll show them the tree we'll talk about the tree and i'll say the persimmon has no tolerance for rude people if you <laughs> grab a persimmon fruit off of its branch without asking often you'll get one that's not ripe it'll make your mouth pucker it'll just it's terrible If you gently ask by gently shaking the tree, may I please have a persimmon, it will drop the fruit that is the best for you. So I think the persimmon tree is a great teacher of politeness to plants. Mm. If you take from the tree, you'll often pay a price for it because those unripe persimmons are nasty. But if you ask gently by gently rocking the tree and it drops, it offers the stuff that it's already on the ground it gives you, those are delicious. And any other fruit, if they were in this shape, soft, they just kind of, when they hit the ground, they sort of, <clears throat> it would be rotten. But with a persimmon, that's when they're ripe and really good.
1: Yeah. And they'll tend to be like an orangish or even a purplish brownish when they're the ripest. And, you know, like all all peoples, whether they're plants people or human people, Every tree kind of has a different personality, so we've found really sweet persimmons, and we've found like kind of hmm, so-so persimmons. I tried experimenting uh, with the Yule Gibbons. What is it? Uh, let's see. Stocking the Wild Asparagus, I guess is the name of it. He has, or in some one of his books, he has a recipe for persimmon um, bread. I tried that it's a lot of work as far as I'm concerned to take the seeds out of persimmons. I say the best way to eat persimmons is just eat the persimmon when it's ripe, when the tree gives it to you and just enjoy the natural sweetness of it. Real quick, um, oh my gosh, real quick, pawpaw. Holy crap. If you've never had a pawpaw before, I feel so sorry for you. The first time I had one, to be fair, it was from my boss's Community, What do they call that? Agriculture CSA something or another. <laughs> Community supported agriculture. Um, not Confederate States of America. Um, but he had a box and it had pawpaw. And he's like, we've been eating these a lot. Uh, I just, I don't want to eat them anymore. Do you want them? Sure. They're amazing. What would you consider like the flavor of a pawpaw?
0: They're asking me? Yeah. Well, they've got all these weird names. Like there's different stages. They tend to fruit like in three... Waves, they call it custard, papa, and all this different stuff. I don't know. It's unique. I wouldn't. I don't think I can compare it to anything. It's really. Maybe it vaguely reminds me in, in texture of a mango, mm-hmm. but it's softer. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons you don't find pawpaws in the grocery stores. It's so soft, they can't ship it. They can't find a way to really make money off of it. So it's still just a, this big, wild fruit that's delicious.
1: And it it does remind me very much of a tropical fruit, although its range is pretty big, I guess, like into Ohio and maybe even north of there. I'm not sure, but you could check it out if you're uh, living in the northern part of the United States. And something else that I feel like is the uh, pawpaw groves are, if you know about them, it's kind of a, a closely guarded secret because there's, they're not everywhere. But when you find a grove of them, it's really, like, really good and fun to go.
0: Yeah, they were kind of my... Holy Grail for a while. I'd heard about pawpaws for years and could not find one. And I was a pretty seasoned forager. I knew my plants, and I was just stymied. Like, why the hell can't I find a papa? So it took me a few years, which made it even more special. I'm glad I had to wait.
1: All right, I'm gonna hurry this up. Um, fox grapes. Fox grapes you are delicious. You to take your
0: time. This is just gonna be a long episode. Oh,
1: okay. Well, what would you say anything about fox grapes?
0: I think they're my favorite kind of grape they're not for everybody. They're especially sour. They grow small in little bunches. So when I find them, I love just grabbing a handful of them and I munch them. The seeds are even really easy to eat. You can eat the seeds of other grapes, but they can be a little hard to crunch on and kind of bitter. But I find fox grape seeds are just the same kind of sour as the fruit for me. So I love them and I love sour.
1: What about cherries? We find cherries and they're again, small. Doesn't your mom make something with cherries?
0: She has. She made, I think the best thing she ever made was a jelly, but it took so many cherries <laughs> and it made so little jelly that we were kind of turned off by the amount of labor. But I do remember it being like extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And there's many kind of cherries out there. So if you run into a cherry and it's like really bitter, don't be put off for good. Uh, you just might have the wrong kind of cherry for your palate. There are some big, juicy, delicious wild cherries. We got black cherry, choke cherry lot of different kinds of cherries i think those are the main two i see in north carolina but it's just a matter of taste
1: Silverberries. Silverberries are the fruit of the uh quote unquote what, what do we call them invasive plants exotic
0: invasive exotic. much maligned russian olive or iliagnus autumn. or autumn olive, olive okay. autumn olive yeah people botanists love to tear up this plant I understand it outcompetes things. My theory about exotic invasives is if we leave them alone, nature will find a balance. And if we hadn't started screwing with stuff in the first place, it wouldn't have to find a way to provide this balance. Uh, I just, especially useful plants like silverberry, I love it. It's got these little silver speckles. The underside of the leaves are silvery. They're anti-carcinogenic, from what I've heard, fight cancer. And they're a really good flavor. Some are delicious. Some are, eh. But they often have a little astringent undertone, uh, mm. like persimmons, but a much less.
1: Apples. Apples are um, cultivated, or they have been, but you can find apples just growing along the side of fields.
0: We saw that that documentary on the book Bot- Botany in of- a Day. No, Botany of Desire. Botany of Desire. Do you remember where they said apples came from?
1: Um, It was somewhere Cassip like... Cassic or Something like that, yeah, or...
0: Yeah, one of those stands. Yeah. yeah. Came from Stan. Um, and they came from the Stan.
1: That guy.
0: So, <laughs> apples are a really interesting thing. And In that book I just mentioned, Botany of Desire, fascinating. It's a fascinating sort of almost animist kind of philosophy where he's talking about how the plants also have used us. And apples are one of the featured plants he talks about. Yeah, we found them in the mountains growing now wild. I don't know if they were once cultivated. I guess from what we've learned, they probably were once cultivated. Mm -hmm. So whenever you find those, great. Apples. They have natural pectin in them, too. So Mm. do you know anything about that?
1: Um, Pectin can be good for things.
0: Like making jelly. It makes (laughs) things thicken up. I know my mom has used it. I've never really experimented much with pectin, but I do remember her learning that and passing that on to me.
1: And the last one, the last fruit I have listed, I'm sure there's many, many more depending on the area of the world that you're in, but uh, prickly pear. We actually, um, we, we do have cactus in North Carolina. A lot of times you'll have planted um, cactus that have the, the fruit, fruit-bearing cactus, but you can also get them sometimes from like a um, Hispanic market or whatever, Tienda. But I've cooked with them. They're really a pain in the ass to cook with. Uh, I recommend wearing some sort of gloves that are heavy-duty so you don't get the little prickly things in them. Hell,
0: yeah. They will get all over you, and you can't even see the yeah, little prickles.
1: You can't see them, so you basically— Don't get them in your lip. Yeah. Um, but I made, a, like, a glaze with it for a piece of pork that we had found from the dumpster, and it was really amazing. And we just found out that you can also use it as a dye, which if you see them and you work with them, you'll see why, because they're very purple.
0: Oh, maybe we can post that picture of that that picture I took. Oh yeah, the, all the dye. Dyes. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. We went to a arboretum, a free admission thing the other day in Flagstaff and they had this presentation of all the plant dyes, including the prickly pear Teresa's talking about. It's really interesting, so check out our Facebook page.
1: Yeah, I'll post that. Um, but again, what I mentioned as far as the region of the world or the country that you're in, as well as the season, um, there's one other one that I have listed, which I have not personally had too much experience with, but I have heard it's edible many different ways, is yucca. Um, of course, a lot of, well, not a lot of places, but some restaurants offer yucca fries. I don't know exactly how to make those. Um, I picked a yucca fruit type thing when I was walking with my dad in the high desert of Utah, brought it home and checked it out, opened it up, Gumby opened it up and saw we saw the seeds.
0: Yeah, it looks slightly like passion for flower fruit, if you're familiar with that, which is an edible itself.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And um, the yucca flowers are edible as well.
0: Yeah, they're a way from a more survivalist perspective. If you can't find water, uh, yucca flowers are really full of juice, so you can chew them up. Anytime you don't have water, you don't want to swallow food because your body's already kind of maxed out with its jobs to do. Don't add another one by digesting food, but yucca flowers are one of the good ones to munch, swallow the juice, spit out the the plant if you can't find water.
1: And one other kind of category to put these plants into is trailside nibbles. Yucca flower would probably be a trailside nibble for me. I don't necessarily want to eat a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Indian strawberry or Indian snakeberry, which Gumby has.
0: Oh, I would not put that as a trailside nibble. I use that medicinally. It's not poisonous. I don't consider it edible, although it doesn't hurt you. But yeah, I would never just nibble one for the fun of it or anything.
1: Well, I was thinking of, yeah, it doesn't taste like a strawberry at all. It basically adds a little bit of moisture to your mouth. And so I guess it isn't Edible in the sense that it's good, but it could be something that would be helpful. Like if you were chewing grass to get the stuff out, you could chew that to get the moisture out.
0: And we have a video on this if you don't know what we're talking about, which actually happens to be our most watched YouTube video of all time <laughs> for some reason we don't understand. But uh, check out snakeberry hobo burn medicine. That it's a it's a lookalike for strawberry.
1: Um, the hanging down little flowers of solomon's seal I've eaten before. I've eaten them um, on that plant hike I mentioned in the first episode in the mountains of North Carolina outside of Hot Springs. So you can check that out for yourself. And uh, you can also, I mean, just because they're trailside nibbles, you can still make a meal from them. And I failed to mention for some reason putty root when I was talking about stir fries, soups, and stews. I think it's because Gumby hates them. But I I actually... hate
0: them.
1: Okay, he doesn't really like them.
0: We don't have a warm relationship. That's all. Okay. I like that they're out there and they provide really good nutrition when nothing else is out there.
1: That is very true. So we've been on survival overnights where we can't bring in any food. There's been putty root. I believe it is a, a godsend to have that. And I like it, it's a little gummy. So if you have a problem with having things stuck in your molars or whatever... It
0: is the most starchy, gluey thing you may have ever put in your mouth, but it's full of good starches.
1: And I feel like, to me, the the most comparable thing would be kind of like a water chestnut, but nowhere near as crunchy and crisp because it is so starchy. So yeah, you could add that to uh, soup or stew or just eat it as a trailside nibble if you're needing some carbs. And now I'm done, and we're going to move on. <laughs> That's my segue.
0: Whew, that was smooth.
1: Yeah.
0: All right, we're almost to the end of this episode. One more thing I wanted to share with you was one of my favorite parts of Tom L. Elpel's book, Botany in a Day. In the beginning, he recommends learning, depending on what edition you get, six, seven, or eight families. Well, maybe seven or eight. I might be wrong about that. I think I got one, two, three, four. I got seven written down here. <laughs> Uh, I just gave you the smaller group because you might be getting started, so this will help you having less, less is more. So he says, know these families, and if you get to know the patterns where you can recognize something is in this family, you've covered a vast number of the plants you're going to encounter just by these seven families. And knowing about these families, you can make some pretty good guesses as to the medicines and foods they can offer. The first family is the most successful evolutionary family, the Asteraceae, or asters, these are the composites. When you see flowers that are in a big bunch, like think of a sunflower, think of a dandelion, even the petals are flowers. On a dandelion, that's not one flower head, that's many, many flowers. All those things that look like little petals bunched together, each one of those is an individual flower, and it turns into an individual seed. This is the mark of the aster family. They spread prolifically. That's why they are by far the biggest family in this country as far as wild plants go. They are. They have adapted this method to instead of having one flower, having a bunch of flowers and one flower head, and it just helps them spread like crazy. You can make some pretty good guesses. There's a lot of good edibles in this family, so I can't really think of too many... And don't hold me to this, but it's not one of the families that I can think of that have the most poison. So if you see something in the aster family, check it out, see if it's edible. Don't assume it's edible. I can, off the top of my head, like fleabane, think of stuff I wouldn't eat in the aster family. (laughs) Brassicaceae, mustards, this is another family. They have four petals on their flowers. Some of them are really small, some of them are slightly bigger, but I've never seen one that's huge. The petals can be arranged like an H or an X. Another thing that helps you see a mustard and by the way it's not the only family that has four petals it just might mean you're dealing with a mustard if the seeds are coming out they have this really distinctive radial way they grow the seeds can be heart-shaped they can be long like pea pods they can be uh, round like I think Teresa mentioned poor man's pepper earlier mm-hmm. right that's a that's a mustard and if you've ever seen poor man's pepper that's a really typical radial pattern of the mustard group. Mm-hmm. And that has tiny flowers, but if you look closely, it's says four petals. So the mustard family. One of the medicines it can provide is hot pack. You can chew it up, the leaves, and put it on a sore muscle, and you'll feel it get hot. So it can help soothe things. As far as food goes, you know, all the mustard stuff, I'm not sure what vitamins they give you, but they're very edible and very flavorful in moderation in other dishes. Lamiaceae, mint. This is... A plant that whenever I encountered it, encounter it, when I have kids or students of any kind, I love to talk about families because it has such distinctive marks in its family. Remember when we're talking about family, underneath family is genus species. So family is a big umbrella. In a family, there's many genuses, which are smaller groups like Plantago, When I talk about plantain, that's a genus within a bigger group. And then species so we're talking about a lot of plants here the pattern of the big umbrella i'm calling the mint family opposite leaves so leaves that grow like the arms coming off your body side by side not one here one there one here one there staggered like human footprints Um, square stock it's not the only family that has a square stock but you you can make a pretty good bet when you run into a square stock you might have a mint so try to roll the stock, or look at it very closely. It has four walls, four sides instead of round like so many other stalks.
1: Like roll it between your fingertips.
0: Yep. Uh, five, if you look at the flower, it's got five united petals, which means the, the five petals are all grouped, are linked. You can't find separations if you follow them all the way to the bottom. There's two lobes that point up, three lobes that point down. This is a typical mint flower. And by the way, in the springtime and summer when the flowers are out, best time to learn your plant species and and families. These are the most distinctive part of the plant. Once you learn the flowers, you can get to know the rest of the plant and start recognizing stuff even in the winter when you're looking at a little nub of a dead Mm stalk. Number four, Apiaceae, the parsley family learn this family. This is one I would underline, put an asterisk by, because mm-hmm. those two plants I mentioned, poison hemlock and water hemlock, are in this family, along with things like, don't just say, it's a, oh, it's in that family. I don't want to mess with it, because in this family also is wild carrot, is sweet sicily, one of the most delightful flavors that I find in the plant kingdom, So get to know the parsley family because you want to really know what you're dealing with here A lot of the poisonous plants like poison hemlock and water hemlock tend to have purple streaks or purple in the stalk Um, They're often smooth whereas a really fuzzy stalk might mean it's a wild carrot And they if you crush up the leaf it has a smell that's kind of caustic It smells like a chemical that might be under your sink so it's almost like, I don't think of it like an odor, it's more like a reaction my nose has. It's kind of ugh, like it stings.
1: And for God's sake, if you do crush it up or touch it in any way, wash your hands.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I am not a germaphobe and I'm saying wash your hands after dealing with this plant. It's a really good idea. Flower patterns tend to be compound umbels. If you've ever seen a wild carrot or something, you know what I'm talking about. It's almost like an umbrella itself of like kind of almost spider webby, net looking white flowers that spread out into an umble. And just like it sounds, umble is kind of like an umbrella. 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 Mm-hmm. Each one of those individual flowers, which tend to tend to be small and kind of get lost in the bigger umble, has five petals, five stamens and a two celled ovary. Now, you gotta look really close to determine where the ovary is of a plant, much less to tell if it's two-celled. But for those of you who really wanna push your botanical knowledge, and it's really fun to look at these little details, it's almost like you're kinda getting in on a secret of this plant that other people don't even know what to look for. Look for that. Would five use- petals, five stamens, and a two-celled ovary.
1: Would you use a loop to, um, to see that? Or could you?
0: I don't, oh. but I know other people who do, so I wouldn't say don't use one. I mean, so you whatever don't need works. One. It depends on the plant.
1: Mm.
0: I've yet to see something. And again, I haven't tried to look for this detailed stuff, maybe in a couple of years now. So might be an age thing, but I could usually see what other people are bringing out the loop. And anytime I don't need to use a tool that I can just like use my body and the, the plant in question, I, I prefer that. So I tend to veer away from tools unless I really need them. And I, I don't find I need a loop.
1: Okay, that's a jeweler's One, two, three, loop, just in case you're interested.
0: Yeah, it's like a little magnifying glass, basically. Number five, the Fabaceae, feb- or pea family. This is another really fun group to know. It's got irregular flowers, which means if you draw a line through them a certain way, like if you think of a sunflower, draw a line in any direction, uh, side to side, up and down, any direction, the two sides look the same. An irregular flower, you can find directions to draw a line through it, and you have two very distinctive-looking sides that don't look like each other. The pea flower tends to have the the pattern that is known to identify the pea flower is banner, wings, and keel, and it is the most vaginal, sensual, sexual-looking flower. I I think it's just kind of my, like, dirty little mind why I, I even like checking out these flowers, but I am nasty. But when you go to the flower, it's got a big banner, so it's sort of like the, what would you call that, the pubes mons? (laughs)
1: Something like that.
0: Yeah, so there's this big petal that's on the top. Then you've got these two wings that are like the, what would you call that, the vulva. The lips. Yeah, the outer lips. and inside, like if you part those lips, there's what's called the keel, which is like the inner lips. So (laughs) it looks... I'm not just saying this to be dirty. It definitely looks like a vagina, right?
1: Of course, Gumby did a video on this.
0: But does it look like a vagina?
1: Yeah, it looks like a vagina.
0: See? (laughs) So... But even in a clover, a clover is in this family, the pea, f- the pea family. I was like, well, a clover flower looks totally different. But if you look at the individual clover flower, even the tiny little ones like hop clover and rabbit clover, same damn pattern. They're tiny little vaginas. So that's <laughs> that pretty cool. That should have been
1: your guitar strum. Tiny Vagina. V-
0: <laughs> that blew my mind when I, I found that out. But this family has a lot of toxins in it as well as edible plants, so it's a good family to know. It's one of the ones that are heavier with toxins, so there, you could hurt yourself with the pea family. got to be careful with that one. Number six, the Lilaceae, lily family. This is our only monocot in this group. Dicots tend to have flowers that are in fives or more. Monocots tend to have flowers that are in three or more. There's many other differences of how they, like, pop out of their seed and everything, but that's just kind of one of the first ones. But there are two main branches of plants, dicots and monocots. This is the only representative of the monocot in these ones I'm mentioning right now. Hmm. It's got three sepals and three petals that look like the same size and color. So if you see a lily flower, it looks like six petals, but actually three of them are sepals, which grow underneath the petals. They perform a slightly different function on the plant. They tend to be a little bit thicker, a little bit more protective um, and parallel leaf veins. This is something that's typical. Not, if you see that, it doesn't definitely mean lily, but it could, you could make a good guess it's a lily. So when you look at the veins of the leaf, you don't see like a mid vein and branches coming out. You see parallel veins just side by side going the length of the leaf. Lily family has a lot of good things like onions, like garlic, um, things like that. Um, God, it's got a lot of edibles. Now that I think about it, a lot of plants have edible roots in this family, but you have to be careful. Know your species because there are also a lot of endangered species. Like it's not worth you just trying a meal for the hell of it. You know, you might actually really be hurting this population even by trying to be careful. So that's one good reason to know the lily family along with some of the edibles that are more common like onion. And last but Definitely not least, rosaceae, the rose family. Lots of edibles in this family. Like I said, the nightshade family kind of got exploited and harvested for all the edibles that got made from this. So did the rose family. Apples, cherries, uh, God, pears. Can you think of any more? Uh,
1: uh, um...
0: Yeah, yeah. Whenever I'm put on the spot, I can't think of them. But I could make a huge list. Rose hips. I could make a huge list of fruits that you are familiar with that are in the rose family. Strawberry. That's a good example of how a tree and a little plant that grows in your lawn can look totally different, but the flower is the same. Oh. So that's one of the reasons why everybody says study flowers first. The plant can very much adapt and change, even of the same species, depending if it's shade, wet, sunny, dry, Hmm. but the flower is going to look just the same. Let's see, roses, they tend to have five petals... If you look inside the flower, five sepals, serrated leaves, and not every member of the rose family, but many, if you look at the base of the leaf, there's like a little tiny leaf of where it comes out. It looks like a little spike. It's really small. It's called a stipule. So this is something that's a typical, you find often in the rose family. So those are some things to look for. Anything to add before I close that up?
1: No, I think that was a really nice introduction to plant families.
0: All right, yeah, and I know that was a lot, so please, if you're interested in plants, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have enough interest in plants to get Botany in a Day by Tom Melpell and benefit from that book. And right there in the beginning, he makes it, like spells it right out for you. He mentions these families, if you forget, and he's got pictures and everything, so it's so much more than what I can give you in a podcast. Check it out. One of the things we're wanting to do, with that is the end of our episode, Foraging Hobo's Garden of Eaton Part 2. <laughs> um, we're really glad that we're starting to get some feedback, some messages from people. We always ask for questions or suggestions, so we want to like try to pick one at the end of every episode when we can, um, when we can make time for it, and share it and try to respond to it. So this is Bill from Sweden. No, Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Bill in Switzerland, not from Switzerland.
1: And we did not make this up. <laughs>
0: Yeah, my mother did not write this.
1: All right. Bill says, I just wanted to send you a friendly email thanking you for your exceptional podcast. It's nice to listen to kindred spirits like you. I'm a 50-year-old American living in Switzerland. While I live in a flat today, I've never felt attached to any house or place, never owned more than what I can carry on my back, have a healthy distrust of science, religion, and all things societal enjoy the freedom of barefoot living, and realize the superiority of things that money cannot buy. You guys are a breath of fresh air. He hasn't smelled us. (laughs) It makes this middle-aged man feel less crazy for what he believes. Don't stop creating great content. FYI, it's not the subjects of your podcasts that make you interesting, even though the subjects that you have covered thus far have been very relevant. It's your commentary. It's the tangential thoughts—I like that word, tangential— That you express that make you guys shine i would love to hear your ideas on god nature mind justice etc etc in the future thanks again and i hope to be listening to you for a very long time
0: yeah i'd say first of all thank you so much for that positive feedback bill (laughs) i'm so used to arguing with people on facebook and stuff and uh (laughs) we don't get enough positive feedback so thank you for that that really made our morning to get that message um I'd say it's a good thing you don't know us better because if you find your beliefs align with ours, I'm not sure it would make you feel less crazy, but, uh, (laughs) you know, I'm I'm glad it's having that effect on somebody. And I would also add that our favorite parts tend to be the philosophy parts too. We're trying to mix like practical stuff that, you know, sometimes even we find a little dry and heady, but we see that it's necessary It's stuff that we use with philosophy and art. Some of our favorite episodes have been Drain on Society and If I Didn't Have Kids, because when we got done with those, we were like, wow, you know, we were really (laughs) excited. We felt like we'd said something, poured something like deeply from ourselves into those episodes. So uh, we will try to keep that in mind because we actually have the most fun talking about that stuff. Mm. Would you want to like to add anything?
1: Oh, I, I just wanted to say we have a growing list of subjects that Gumby is always like, hey, get that notebook and add this to it. And I'm like, wow. If we get a chance to cover all of these subjects, we're going to be on somebody's list. (laughs) Gonna be. Yeah, well, yeah. They haven't found us yet.
0: (laughs) All right. Bill goes on to say, because we asked for suggestions, Hello again. I just listened to your podcast regarding Supertramp and appreciated your take on the subject. Supertramp is also an inspiration to me. I thought I'd give you a few examples of people who have inspired me over the years. People that I would be interested in hearing your thoughts about. Daniel Suelo. Suelo is a man who left society and now lives in a cave near Moab. The book, The Man Who Lives Without Money, is wonderful in my opinion. Suelo also was someone who burned all his money before leaving society. Well, it was funny Bill mentioned that because uh, we've already got that on our master (laughs) list. Like, we're aware of this guy and love the book as well, so we plan on talking about him sometime in the future. Indeed. Bill also says, Christopher Thomas Knight. A.K.A. The North Pond Hermit The book about him by Michael Finkel Stranger in the Woods Describes Knight's journey Into an almost alternative mindset When leaving the known world Great, respectful book Uh, We're definitely interested In looking into this guy I haven't gotten around to it yet But it sounds like somebody That we would definitely Want to do an episode on And finally And if you really want To get some listens And some criticism uh, We like them both (laughs) I'd love to hear what you think About Ted Chizinski while I do not agree with his tactics, I can't help but see him as a great source of information about the burdens of society. So, yeah, we've already got him on our list for season three. No, We're, I want to say. Go ahead.
1: We are, I think, about halfway through the manifesto Yeah. from the Unabomber.
0: And we've really enjoyed it. He's got some really provocative thoughts.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's his opinions and and observations and experiences but it makes a lot of damn sense i'm not saying i agree like gumby said i'm not saying i agree with everything but yeah definitely check it out and we're
0: and i'm also saying i don't necessarily disagree with his (laughs) tactics so i'm excited to talk more about that
1: yep okay sorry i interrupted you
0: no it was it was an appropriate interruption (laughs) And Bill also says, also you've mentioned Zerzan in the past. I'd like to hear more of your opinions regarding him. I have been following him for many, many years, and he has been a great source of inspiration for me. I'd also like to see more people read him. Just some thoughts. Take care. I agree. Zerzan is like, I haven't read much of him. we got so many books on our list right now, I'm not sure when I'm going to get back around to Zerzan, but... When I run across a quote or something he said, I tend to really like it and be inspired by it myself, and I would also like to see more people read him.
1: That's John Zerzan?
0: John Zerzan. Hmm. Uh, there's this Facebook page, Facebook group that I'm part of. There's a Zerzan, a John Zerzan fan club. Uh, so yeah, check that out.
1: Yeah, I, I just really appreciate that Bill didn't write just once. He wrote twice, and he has some great suggestions, and... Um, I still encourage people, if you're out there listening, tell us what you think, um, review the podcast, give us some suggestions, and we don't, I mean, obviously, we love to hear positive feedback, but if you've got some negative feedback, suggestions, whatever, too, please write in. We have a contact form on our website. It's escapingsociety.weebly.com. You can also contact us through our Facebook page, Escaping Society, or however. Um, let's see yep we have our Facebook page we've got our YouTube videos which I'll try to post some of those on the Facebook page um, that are relevant to this episode and I mentioned our website and is there anything else
0: Well, yeah, please review our podcast. If you enjoyed it, there's a little place where you can, like, put a star by it or whatever. Um, So any kind of feedback or review, like, we really appreciate that. That helps us know if we're getting through to people or if there's something we can do better.
1: (laughs) If there's anyone out there. I mean, we're almost to a 1,000 listens, so...
0: Sorry (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I really love criticism Like through this format Because the nature of the beast Is I get to have the last word Because it's my podcast (laughs) So that's one of the fun things So uh, definitely give us criticism But uh, I will definitely like address it Because I love a debate You know I'm not not talking about When I say criticism Some people think like Just being an asshole (laughs) No. No I love a respectful disagreement That's how we grow So I love criticism uh, so I guess that's it, right?
1: That is it. We thank you for listening, and we we'll hope to see you next time. Yep. Or listen or talk to you next time. whatever. Goodbye. Thanks. Bye.